It's Monday, May 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. One of the most interesting aspects of the coronavirus pandemic is how our everyday lives have changed. One such thing is a move away from the culture of waste. People are regrowing scallions and growing herbs at home, washing and reusing Ziploc bags, and more. But while being this frugal in the past was mostly rooted in saving money, this time around, it's a little different. There's a fear of scarcity, and also an effort to avoid unnecessary movement. Meredith Haggerty, editor at Vox, joins us for the novel Frugality. Next, coronavirus has upended the U.S. food system. It was always a delicate balance of demand from consumers at grocery stores and restaurants, and the supply chain from farmers and fruit processors. But illnesses, shutdowns, and stay-at-home orders changed everything. Farmers had crops spoil without any buyers, meat processors closed due to outbreaks, distributors lost 60 to 90% of their business volume, and food banks who relied on grocery stores and restaurants are struggling as the need has surged. Kevin Rector, reporter at the LA Times, joins us for the chaotic food system. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Is it safe for me to go buy this for my family again? Or is it safe for me to send somebody else to buy it? Or wouldn't it be better to maybe get a little bit more out of my bread, a little bit more out of my aluminum foil, a little bit more out of my Ziploc bags? And that's what we're seeing people sort of embracing and realizing what they had on their hands already. Joining us now is Meredith Haggerty, editor at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Meredith. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit about how our lives have changed because of the current pandemic that we're going through. One of the interesting things, there's this new sense of frugality that is set in for a lot of people. Anecdotally, you just hear some of these stories. And, and even online, you've been seeing things about how people are growing green onions, scallions at their home so they don't have to get out to the store so much. Myself, I've taken to rewashing and reusing the little red plastic solo cups and even saving some of those plastic to go containers from takeout and things like that. We're kind of all getting in this mode again. A lot of it is not necessarily new, but maybe the circumstances of why we're doing it is obviously new. So, Meredith, tell us a little bit about how frugality has creeped back into America. So, I mean, I also, I noticed a lot of people tweeting or talking about, say, eating the ends of their bread for the first time or washing aluminum foil, which they hadn't done previously. I have not done that uh, one yet. <laughs> I have, I've only just started doing that. I was not, I have to admit, like a super frugal person myself previously. But the thing that I thought was really interesting about this behavior is that when I first started hearing about it, it was from people who I knew, say, weren't necessarily in a position of economic precarity. There obviously is a lot of unrest and uncertainty about the future right now, and everyone's a little freaked out. But it seemed like these new behaviors weren't necessarily coming from a place of, will I be able to buy this stuff for my family again? It came a lot from a place of, is it safe for me to go buy this for my family again? Or is it safe for me to send somebody else to buy it? Or wouldn't it be better to maybe get a little bit more out of my bread, a little bit more out of my aluminum foil, a little bit more out of my Ziploc bags. And that's what we're seeing people sort of embracing and realizing what they had on their hands already. And you contrast this with the kind of thought of frugality from years past or, you know, your grandparents or other even culturally people that had to have saved because they've gone through tough times. They went through the Great Recession. They lived in a country maybe where they didn't have a lot of stuff, things like that. That's kind of where you think the basis of it comes from. But you're right. Everything is different now, you know, with all of these stay at home orders and people are genuinely freaked out sometimes about going out into public and getting sick. You're just kind of wanting to save as much as you can just 
to save yourself from being out there? So I talked to an expert in frugality, Ronald Goldsmith, who had studied it pre-pandemic. And he had talked about how, for the most part, there had been two types of frugality, intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsic is just some people are naturally frugal. They might be super wealthy, but they're still going to save every takeout container no matter what. And there are other people who are extrinsically frugal, and that's because of the circumstances they find themselves in economically. For the most part, what Mr. Goldsmith said to me was they would like to be able to be less frugal, but they don't have the funds for it. And in this case, we're seeing just sort of this moment where people who were not intrinsically frugal are suddenly becoming extrinsically frugal, but not because they don't have the money, but because they are dealing with this unprecedented situation that we're all dealing with right now. And it's crazy because we invented this whole industry of disposable products, really. A bunch of stuff. You mentioned them in the article, diapers, cameras, contact lenses, the plastic bags, the Ziploc bags, all of this stuff is just disposable things for us. And now even with the Ziploc bags, people are washing them and turning them inside out and drying them so they can reuse them. And, you know, these are all these things. Maybe so going back to this getting out in the world, just so you don't have to rebuy them again. And some people like kind of that regret sets in too. It just happened to me because I 100% literally just ran out of these gallon size Ziploc bags. And I'm like, man, I should have washed some of these this past week and saved those. Yeah, it's like, oh, when I don't have this anymore, I don't have it in a way that I think some people just hadn't really experienced in the same way before. It's a strange time, but I think that cultural disposability thing, that's sort of the thing I really wanted to get at in this piece too, is like America has a materials culture and has for 70 some odd years at least, maybe more. And we've been encouraged through marketing and through the way that things are made through planned obsolescence, through disposability, just to think of things as being able to be thrown away and that we constantly need the new thing, that we're always being sold something else. And that was good for marketers. That was good for companies. It's not necessarily good for the environment. It's not necessarily good for us. And more importantly, it's not necessarily necessary, which I think is the thing that people often forget. I have always thrown away Ziploc bags and I've only just started rewashing them. And it's like, oh, now I still have Ziploc bags. Like (laughs) what a small miracle. Talk to me a little bit about the fear of scarcity and panic buying, because we know we all remember the stories right when this happened. Obviously, the toilet paper, paper towels, cleaning supplies, that was the first stuff to go. Right now, we're hearing about things with the food supply and certain things might not be available. Tell me a little bit about that. So we're definitely seeing fears around the supply chain. As someone who's reported on the supply chain in the past, I've never heard people talk about it in conversation quite as much as we are these days. There's the fear that all these meat plants are being shut down, which they probably should be for safety. There are fears about toilet paper and Clorox wipes and all of these things that the supply chain, because of the way it's structured, is not able to just get up and out to us at the speed that we're currently demanding it. So I think that instills in people just a real fear of like, even if I go to the supermarket, if I get myself out and I go out there, will there be the thing that I need there? Um, which is an unusual thought in 2020 America before the pandemic. This is actually one of the aspects of the piece where I the most was like, well, when I have started doing these things, I am doing it because I'm afraid it's not going to be there when I get to the supermarket. Like I am afraid of scarcity personally. And I think that we saw that same fear with people buying up all the toilet paper immediately. As we know, coronavirus is not a gastrointestinal disease. It doesn't really make sense that we all went out and bought toilet paper. But that is what people did. And that leads to a shortage. And that leads to this fear of future shortages, just the realization that we might live in a really interconnected and impressive global system previously, but that's not necessarily always the case when things are changing so rapidly and so terrifyingly. Definitely interesting times with what's going on. And one of these things that's interested me so much is how 
we're adapting and changing to all of this. So I want to use the term you coined for the article. It's just so interesting how this novel coronavirus has instilled this novel frugality in a lot of people. Meredith Haggerty, editor at Vox, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was just that every day, day after day, the markets were changing and supply was changing and demand was changing such that they've been on this whirlwind roller coaster of logistical gymnastics day after day. Joining us now is Kevin Rector, reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about the U.S. food system throughout this whole coronavirus pandemic. It's really been upended starting on March 16th when the governor basically asked restaurants to shut down. I mean, it just created this whole ripple effect on how delicate the food supply chain really is in the state and in the country, really. This is happening all over the place. Obviously, we're going to talk about California specifically, but it's particularly crazy here in California. There's a third of the country's vegetables and two-thirds of the fruits and nuts are grown here in this state. So things that are happening here are affecting the entire country, really. And you spoke to dozens of people, farmers, truckers, grocery store executives, restaurateurs, food service providers, and food bank administrators to get a sense of what's going on with the supply chain here. So, Kevin, tell us a little bit about that. In conversations with all of those folks, it was made clear to me that there's really no sector in the U.S. food system that hasn't been struck by this. A lot of those sectors work sort of hand in hand with one another. They have sort of stood up or they had stood up these very complex, precise supply chains for serving the residents of the state in the ways that they were accustomed to eating and dining out and things like that. But like you mentioned, when the governor sort of asked that all the restaurants closed down, it totally shattered a lot of that system and forced people to find new ways to match the supply of food with the demand. One of the biggest changes right out of the gate at that point was the food service sector, which supplies not only restaurants, but schools and hotels, et cetera, with a ton of food, totally shut down. Some distributors lost 90% of their business overnight. It did depend on what sort of diversification they had among their customers. So some providers for a lot of fast food restaurants and things like that, that kept on with their drive-through and carry-out options, maintained a larger percentage of their business. But a lot of the industry was just decimated. At the same time, grocery store demand shot up. As everyone knows, a lot more people were flowing into grocery stores, particularly in the beginning there. There was a lot of hoarding going on, essentially people stockpiling food, based in part on their uncertainty as to whether or not it would remain available. I think some of that was due to earlier signs that people were seeing that supplies of other things like toilet paper and paper products weren't necessarily on the shelves. And then it was sort of a vicious cycle. So yeah, it started that way and it's rippled out into a lot of other portions of the system. And that's a huge part of it, that the retail demand went up as people were trying to stockpile very early on. It's like, hey, you got to be quarantined for two weeks. So people were trying to buy enough food for those two weeks and longer if they had to. And while that demand went up, the demand on the restaurant side went down. But 
that rise in the retail demand was not enough to offset what was being lost on the restaurant side. And farmers were hit especially hard too with a bunch of their crops went rotten and they had to kind of restart all over again when the restaurants weren't buying up the bulk of that food. And even still now for them, is I have to imagine as tough as restaurants are going to start reopening, it's still unclear what the demand is going to be. Even if a restaurant opens up, I'm sure they're not going to be at capacity right away. They're limiting how many people are going to be in there. So for farmers, it's a tough game right now on matching that demand. One thing I heard from almost everyone I talked to is that this was not just the market was one way one day and then it was a different way the next day and everyone could start getting in shape and getting in line for the new way the markets worked. It was just that every day, day after day, the markets were changing and supply was changing and demand was changing such that they've been on this whirlwind roller coaster of logistical gymnastics day after day trying to figure out what they can do to sort of shore up their bottom line and also make sure that food supply doesn't go to waste. So before the pandemic, there was this elaborate system by which grocery stores would kick out excess produce and product to food banks. And then the food banks would supply these sort of local community pantries or soup kitchens or folks who are providing meals to needy residents. But when the world changed, all of those supply chains were disrupted. Groceries were selling more stock off their shelves, and so they had less to provide to the food banks. Here in California, in Hollywood, the Hollywood Food Coalition, which has for 33 years served hot meals to folks on the street each night, they received a lot of food from studio productions, television and movies. They could feed hundreds of people a night just based on leftover food. All of that shut down. So suddenly they didn't have that product. And at the same time, like you said, a lot of the farmers suddenly had a ton of produce that they were having in the the old world gobbled up each day by restaurants, no longer having a market. And I talked to one lettuce grower who said they're considering shifting what they grow to grow more iceberg and romaine which is what grocery store buyers purchase, and less of the sort of boutique leaves that chefs use in fancy salads. So it was an array of disruptions that all hit at once. And like you mentioned, some restaurants are coming back online or learning how to do delivery or working with the apps that people are using more and more. And so the demand on the food service sector hasn't just dropped off a cliff and then stayed there forever. It's it's climbing back up. I think it's shifting on a day-to-day basis. So people are having to evolve. Going back real briefly to what you mentioned about the food banks, I made a note on my article here on the notes uh, and I just simply wrote, wow, I didn't know that a single day of production on a film or TV set could have enough leftover meals for hundreds of people on any given day. That's crazy. And, and as you say, you know, things shut down almost immediately that's all those people are left without nothing. You know, in the first three weeks of April, there was nearly 265,000 people that applied for government food assistance under the CalFresh program. Food banks were seeing thousands of people in increase that needed food. So it's very tough out there. And one of the ones that we've been hearing a lot when we hear about the food supply chain is in danger are meat processors. We've seen a bunch of plants closed down due to coronavirus outbreaks, people there getting sick, and they've had to change a bunch of stuff in their processing plants to accommodate that. Just as 
there was sort of increasing demand on processors, including as some processing facilities were shut down because of outbreaks, there was this added need to better space out employees. So you were looking at increased demand at the same time you were looking at the need to have fewer employees on a production line or things like that. So a lot of meat processors have sort of scrambled to reshape how they operate and in order to meet higher demand for packaged meats and groceries, but at the same time keep their frontline workers safe. And that's part of this picture. It hasn't always gone that way for either meat processors or for grocery stores. We are seeing employees in the food sector falling sick, and there's pushback from unions and other advocates for these workers to say, that the companies who employ them need to be doing more to ensure their safety. And that does take careful consideration. It's another logistical hurdle that these companies are dealing with, just as they are dealing with all of these other logistical hurdles in terms of matching supply with demand. And it's a top to bottom thing. We've talked about the distributors, the restaurants, the processors, the farmers, all that, but truck drivers also. There's been an ebb and flow in how they've been operating early on. The demand for their services was huge because everybody was doing all this kind of panic buying. And now that's kind of leveled off a little bit. So for smaller trucking companies, it's hard to keep them in business. It's hard to keep the haulers hauling all the freight because there's just not as much anymore. Some folks in the trucking industry told me that they're sending out drivers to carry certain hauls at a loss because before all of this happened, there was a shortage of truck drivers in the country and companies work hard to build up stable staffing and to have good truck drivers working for them. And they don't want to lose all of that now. So they've been taking jobs at a loss just to keep their truckers rolling. That's another example of how this ripples out. A lot of the uh, food service industry companies relied a lot on truck drivers to move product across the country and from one area to another. And a lot of that fell off. Folks in the food sector, growers and food service sector companies and food banks and all sorts of different folks are trying to reroute transport capacity to where it needs to be so that food doesn't go to waste and people don't go hungry. The government is trying to step in. USDA has put up plans for billions of dollars to reroute some of the supply on the produce side into the food banks, because like you mentioned, the lines of these food banks are getting longer and longer. So there is a lot of effort out there to figure out the transportation of all this food as well. I mean, it's tough to predict when something like this will happen and upend the entire food system, but it really just shows us how delicate the balance is and, and how one little thing affects everything else. You know, looking to the future, we're going to have to see what type of new system maybe we can implement that compare, you know, people and some of these institutions that need the food with those that have the food supply. So, I mean, hopefully we can get this under wraps, but for now, it's just a chaotic thing right now. And no end in sight, really, until things get back to normal, if they ever do. So we'll have to keep an eye out for all of that. Kevin Rector, reporter at the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.